Praise God, brothers and sisters. I wanted to ask you guys, um, is anyone happy that summer's over? A couple of people know. Or is it just me? I'm, I'm kind of happy that summer's over. I enjoy summer. I enjoy the nice weather. But for me, I love the fall time. I love this weather. I love Washington weather. I like getting rain. I might be a weird guy, but I like getting rain. I like the colder weather. I like to wear flannels. And I like to see the trees like this every single year as you're driving down the road. And uh, I like to celebrate holidays, right? And this month, we have at the end of the month on October 31st, and I'm um, excited to celebrate this holiday. Um, is anyone else going to celebrate on October 31st this year? Is it just me? Okay, what holiday is on October 31st? Can we say it all together? One, two, three. That was kind of weird. I, I'm getting multiple answers. Come on. One, two, three. Daylight savings. I'm getting Halloween over here. I'm getting some right answers over here. Uh, October 31st is Happy Reformation Day. It's Reformation Day. Do you guys know what uh, the Day of Reformation stands for or what happened on that day? Can I have a hand? Uh, Remus, go ahead. So Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses, right, to the church door. Um, why did he nail these 95 Theses to the door? What are the 95 Theses? Can anyone answer that? Why is that important? Yep. Did everyone hear what Rima said? People in the back, no? Raise your hand if you didn't hear what he said. Okay, I'll explain to you what Remus just said in the next 30, 40 minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, to understand why Martin Luther wrote these 95 theses, no, 95 theses, I was about to say 99, 95 theses. Um, we have to go back in history because Remus was talking about he did it because the Catholic Church was doing wrong stuff and he was correcting them. But I wanted to go way back. I wanted to go way back in the history of the church. And um, do you guys kind of know the history of the church between the time of the apostles and like maybe the time of Martin Luther or maybe the time right now? You know, 2,000 years has passed since that time. There's a lot of history. And um, when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he died for our sins, he rose from the dead, and he was ascending up into heaven, he tells his disciples to go and to wait in the upper room. He says to go and wait for the day of Pentecost and that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them. And the Holy Spirit comes... And he goes upon the disciples, and the disciples start preaching. And they go out and they preach the gospel to the whole world. And as they're preaching, 
They are being persecuted. They're being, everywhere they go, people hate them. People are stoning them. People are throwing rocks and killing them. And one of these guys that was actually one of the, you could say, main guys, and he had a license from the church at the time to kill these Christians uh, and imprison them. His name was Saul. You guys all know Saul and how he had his conversion uh, to Paul, right? And so this guy that goes around and he was persecuting Christians, he is now himself preaching the gospel and he is now himself being persecuted. And um, Paul uh, goes to prison multiple times. He's beaten. And on his last, uh, and, and actually during his imprisonments, he is able to write uh, books. He's able to write actually letters to the churches. And nowadays, uh, we refer to them like as epistles. We have the book of Romans, Ephesians, Philippians. And we have like many, many books, 14 out of 27 books Apostle Paul wrote himself in the New Testament. And uh, on his last, you could say, missionary journey, he ends up in Rome, and him and Peter are actually there at the same time. And uh, what happens is, with Paul, is uh, he's in prison, and he writes the things. And then uh, him and Peter both die around the same year uh, by Emperor Nero. And Apostle Paul, uh, because Apostle Paul's a Roman citizen, he can't be crucified. He can't, they can't kill him by crucifixion. So uh, he's beheaded. But Peter, on the other hand, Peter's a Jew, and they crucified him. But Peter didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified like Christ was. So they crucified Peter upside down. He was crucified on a cross upside down. And um, we know that Matthew the one that wrote the book of Matthew, he, uh, um, he ministered to Persia, to Ethiopia, and he was actually stabbed to death by a group of people there in Ethiopia. And uh, James, he, uh, the story is, there's kind of different versions of the story, but one of the versions of the story is he's actually grabbed by the Jews and he's thrown off the temple and then he's clubbed to death. And um, Doubting Thomas, do you guys remember Doubting Thomas? Right, Doubting Thomas, he goes and he preaches the gospel. He goes to Syria, that's east, east of Jerusalem. And he even goes as far east as to end up in India. And he's preaching the gospel out down there through India. And Thomas is also killed. And the only uh, apostle that we know of that wasn't actually martyred was uh, John. Apostle John, he wrote the book of uh, Revelations. And although the, uh, although the disciples, they all died, um, but they all went and they spread the gospel, and they've, they've all been persecuted. They're now all dead. What happens to the church? Does that mean the church died because the apostles died? No, no, yeah. It doesn't mean that, but... They went and they spread the gospel to the whole known world at that time. And the gospel keeps on growing. The church keeps on growing. And as time goes by, um, we uh, have this man a couple hundred years later. We have this man. His name is uh, Constantine the Great. He is a Roman emperor. And this guy, Constantine, he is actually converted to Christianity. He has a vision 
and uh, God reveals something to him, and this guy is, uh, you know, he becomes a Christian. And during this time, there's great persecution in Rome against Christians. And what this guy Constantine does is he outlaws this persecution, and on his deathbed, he actually makes um, Christianity the state religion for Rome. And so, you guys think that it might be a good thing that he made uh, Christianity the state or the government religion, right? Like, this is what we believe. This is what everyone should believe. You know, some of us want that for America. We want um, America to be the, a Christian nation. We want it to run off Christian principles. And that is great in theory, but just like communism, you know, communism offers a bunch of great stuff. It offers, you know, free health care, free school, um, what else does it offer, guys? Free healthcare, free school. Everything's free, exactly. Everything's shared. You're in a you're in commune with everybody, and it's a great idea. But when you try to bring it into action, it might last good for a little bit, but then it only takes one, two, or three bad rulers. Because if everything is shared, you actually don't really own anything. The government kind of owns everything and gives it to you. So it just takes one bad person in the government to just screw everything up for everybody. And that's what we see with communism around the world. And so, um, this is kind of what ends up happening. And uh, Rome actually, a uh, hundred years maybe after uh, he instituted this, uh, Christianity into law, Rome ends up collapsing. This huge, empire that reached this whole known world that was reigning for 1,000 years. Can you guys believe that? Rome ruled the world for 1,000 years. And finally, it falls, and it's split up into different territories. And um, the problem is with the territories is that because uh, um, everything was under Rome, they all spoke, you know, there was one acknowledged language, you know, the Romans spoke Latin. It's kind of like with Soviet Russia, where, you know, in the Soviet Union you had Moldova, Ukraine, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, but the common language was Russian, right? And everyone kind of learned Russian. But as the Soviet Union fell apart, people kind of split off, and now people speak Romanian and Moldova, they speak Bulgarian, they speak Czechoslovakian, and it just split up, and now it's, they're different. Same thing happens here. You have uh, the Turks, you have the uh, Germans, you have the Persians, and they all go and they start speaking their own language. But the problem is with that, it's, you know, it's not bad that maybe that Rome fell apart, but the problem is that the Bible was only at that time translated to Hebrew, uh, Latin, and into um, Greek. Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And so over time, as these people start speaking their own languages and getting to their own territories, they lose the language that Roman, Romans had, and they couldn't read the scriptures. They couldn't understand the scriptures. And so there was a very long period of time where the, um, basically the only people that could read the Bible were the rich people, the people that were, um, uh, went to school, they were educated, that could understand Latin. And this is a very big problem because we see this thing that people start taking advantage of this. People start taking advantage of the fact that
people don't know the scripture. And um, we see this in the, during this time, the Roman Catholic Church was formed. And actually, the Roman Catholic Church, remember how we said uh, um, Constantine established Christianity for all of Rome? And that's kind of where the Roman Catholic Church formed. And even though the Roman Empire fell apart, the Roman Church actually still had massive influence on all the other countries that left. Because they said, you know, we are holding your salvation. If you leave the Roman Church, we're going to take you away from communion. You're not going to be able to participate in communion, the cup and the wine, and we're basically going to damn your country to hell. That's basically what it was. And so the, the church kind of held everything together. And so over time, people started taking advantage of this system. And, um, you know, Martin Luther, he, we said he nailed the 95 Theses to the wall, but he wasn't the first person to speak out against the Roman Catholic Church. There are many people before Martin Luther that spoke out against the stuff that the Roman Catholic Church was doing. And um, uh, one of these guys, his name was John, John Huss. And John Huss, he lived, um, he lived about 100 years before Martin Luther did, and he basically knew Latin, he read the scriptures for himself, and John Hus, what he did is he said to the Roman Catholic Church, you guys are wrong, you guys are teaching the wrong things. And he was, there's people around him and there's people that followed John Hus at the time. And the Roman Catholic Church told him to denounce, to basically recant, to take, take back everything he said against the Roman Catholic Church. He did not and he was burned at the stake. He was literally burned alive because he wouldn't recant what he said. And uh, John Hus's last name in Czechoslovakian or Czech, uh, it means goose, John Goose. And so his, some of his famous, he said many famous last words, but one of the famous last words of John Hus is that today you will burn a goose, but a hundred years from now you will have a swan that you will be, not be able to boil or roast. And this is, you can just say prophetic, what John Hus said, because 100 years later, do you know who's born? Martin Luther. Martin Luther is born 100 years later. And Martin Luther is born, uh, he's born as a peasant. Here's a representation or a picture of what we think Martin Luther might have looked like. Um, he was born as a peasant. His dad wasn't... Uh, rich, his dad didn't have a lot of money, and back in the day, if you were like, you know, it's kind of like a caste system. You guys have you learned in about, you know, in India, where kind of if you were born as a peasant, you kind of stayed as a peasant. If you were born in royalty, you kind of stayed in royalty. And this system it was really hard to jump in between because you had a lot of peasants and just a little bit of royalty that ruled everybody. But the only way to get ahead in life was through education. To learn, and so um, Martin Luther's dad, he saved up money, he scratched money, he put money together. His dad was a farmer at first, and then he left the farms and he became a copper miner, and he actually did very well in that. And he uh, acquired a few mines, and uh, he sent his son Luther to school to be a lawyer because 
he had high hopes for his son that he won't be in the same position that he was. And so from a very young age, Martin Luther is put through schooling. He's put through, from the age of seven, he's put into better schooling. And by the time he's 18, uh, he is taking all the classes, you know, he's, he's taking all the classes that are leading towards him becoming a lawyer, kind of like his prerequisites, right? And uh, the school that he went to was kind of far away from home, and on the weekends, he'd love to visit his family. And so he would actually have to walk the whole way back on the weekend. So Martin Luther is walking back uh, from school, and Martin Luther is caught in a massive, massive thunderstorm. And for Martin Luther, you know, for us, we think, oh, thunderstorm's not a big deal. But for him, he actually had a friend that not too recently before this died because he was struck by lightning, because he was walking in the thunderstorm. And Martin Luther is so afraid, he's so scared, and he calls out, um, he calls out uh, to, it wasn't to God, but he calls out to St. Anne, it, I think it was. He calls out to St. Anne because the Catholics, they have the saints they have to pray to. And he's like, St. Anne, if you protect me and guide me and you uh, basically bring me through this thunder, thunderstorm that I don't die, I am going to become a monk. I don't know where that came from. I don't know why he said I'm going to become a monk. But he said it, and, you know, he, he meant it. God protected him. He went through this thunder, thunderstorm uh, live, and he became a monk. And he quit school, and his father was very upset with him. His father, uh, because being a monk was not a big deal back in the day, it was, you, that was something you didn't really want to go for. There was no really glory in that kind of position. There was really, you know, you're just one of the other monks. And his father was really disappointed in him. Um, Martin Luther becomes a monk, and he goes to the University of Wittenberg in Germany, and he gets his uh, doctorate in theology, and he becomes a professor. And when Martin Luther's a professor, he has to prepare lessons, right? He has to prepare teachings for his students. And so he has to, um, through, his, through his education, he learned, uh, what are the three languages I said the Bible's in? Latin, Greek, Hebrew. So through his schooling, he learned those three languages, and he was able to study the scriptures for himself. And as a professor, his job was to teach the scriptures. And so... Paul, uh, no, Paul, um, Martin is reading the works of Apostle Paul. He is supposed to be teaching on Romans, and he starts reading the book of Romans, and he gets to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, uh, the righteous man shall live by faith. And then, he, and then this really puzzles him, because at the time, um, it was kind of like a workspace salvation, and he keeps reading further, and uh, he gets to Romans 3.28, where it says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. And for, for us, I don't know what that, those verses means to you, but for Martin Luther, that was a huge discovery for him. The Holy Spirit was using his whole life, everything up until this point, and the Holy Spirit reveals the scripture that he 
A man is justified by faith and not by works. And this is contrary to what everything that the Roman Catholic system was teaching at the time. Um, Pope Leo X, which was, he was the Pope at the time, what he did is he created this thing, like Remus said, it's called indulgences. And the reason he created this thing called indulgences is it was a way to collect money from people because he wanted to build uh, or was, um, remodel the, it wasn't remodel, but rebuild the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And that thing's still standing today. It's huge. But that thing was built on money that people donated through these indulgences or they uh, bought their salvation, quote unquote. And here, let me explain to you guys what an indulgence is and how the Catholic system kind of works. So, uh, do you guys know what penance is? Penance. Can you guys give me the definition of indulgence? Penance or indulgence. So, if you were to sin in the Catholic Church uh, back then, you would come before the Father, the priest, right? And you say, Father, I have sinned. And you guys maybe have seen this in movies, the little, he, you're sitting on one bench and on the opposite bench, the priest is sitting there and there's like kind of like a wall right here that you can't see him, but you can talk to him. And you say, uh, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And you confess your sins to him. And he listens to you. He listens, okay, okay. Okay, you are going to have to do this and this and this and this to be forgiven, basically. To basically make up for what you did. You know, you might have to donate a certain amount of money to the church. You might have to give money to the poor. You might have to recite the Lord's Prayer 50 times. I don't know. It's just different according to the, uh, whatever the priest gave you. That was called penance. Penance was kind of a payment for your sin. And so... What an indulgence is, is an indulgence is uh, instead of doing the penance, instead of working uh, to pay off your sin, what you could do is like, you actually pay the church money and they'll just forgive it. Does that sound pretty cool? No? You would have to pay the church money and they would basically wipe away your, the sin so you don't have to do penance. And what the Catholics had is this, have you guys ever heard of purgatory? Purgatory is this kind of place in between heaven and hell that they have where it's kind of like this waiting area. And basically, if you committed a lot of sins here on earth, but you were a, a Catholic, you would end up in purgatory. And depending on how much you sinned, you'd have to wait there before you get into heaven. But if you bought an indulgence, it lessens the time that you have to wait in purgatory before you can go to heaven. It's kind of confusing. It's kind of strange. But that's what was taught back in the day. And Martin Luther, after reading these scriptures in Romans, he has this eye-opening revelation. God opens him the gospel. And Luther goes and he writes 95 theses. And these 95 theses were basically debating and going against every single point that this indulgence uh, stood for. And... Uh, Martin Luther goes and he nails, he nails the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And he actually wrote it in Latin. He wrote it so that he wanted to start a debate with the church. He wanted to start discussion. And he's like, why is this like this? I'm reading in the scripture. He's like, if anyone can debate me based off of scripture, I'm willing to do it. And what happens is he nails the 95 Theses 
And what happens is someone grabs it, translates it from, German, uh, from Latin into German, because Ger Germany is where he lived at the time, and at the time the printing press was just coming up and it was a hot item, and they printed tons of copies of the 95 Theses, and they spread them throughout all of Germany, and they went through all of Europe, and this is not exactly what Martin Luther intended for. Martin Luther just wanted to start a debate, but it ends up happening is they're spread everywhere, and now he's kind of caught in the middle of something that he maybe not have intended, but God intended for him. And so the Catholic Church calls Martin Luther, and they said, did you write all these things? He's like, yes, I wrote all these things. And Martin Luther wants to debate, but they don't really debate Martin Luther. They're kind of just like, um, they're kind of trying to get, get him to admit that he's a heretic so that they can pretty much silence him, they can exile him from the church, they can kill him. And uh, that ends up happening. They exile him from the church. And what's pretty cool is that during Martin Luther's life, because he read the scriptures, he created these five, they're called the five solas. And these are the five solas of the Reformation. Sola means alone. And Martin Luther figured out through reading the scriptures that you, we are saved by what? Grace through faith. We are saved by faith, not by our works. It's not the indulgence that I have to buy or the penance that I have to make up for. We are saved by faith. So he did sola fide, faith alone. We are saved by sola gratia, grace alone. Sola, Christ, sola Christus, in Christ alone. Sola de Gloria, for the glory of God alone. And this is a huge one that Martin Luther pushed, was Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone. He's, this is a huge, you guys don't understand this now, but Sola Scriptura, back in the day, the Pope was your, basically the person you're supposed to listen to. You know, the Bible can say one thing, but if the Pope said something, you listen to the Pope. But Martin Luther, through reading the Scripture, he said, no, the scripture alone is the authority. The Pope answers to scripture. And these are the five points that kind of pushed the Reformation. And afterwards, it just spread and he got a bunch of followers. And it's something that he didn't really intend. He wasn't going out to start a Reformation. But because God used him and because God used this, the Reformation started. He just wanted to start a debate, but God started the Reformation. And I wanted to talk about one of these points right here. Um, sola fide. Uh, faith alone. And I wanted to say, why is this so important? Why was this so important in Martin Luther's time? And why is this so important in our time today? Why is... Faith alone, so important. This message of faith alone is the most important message you will ever hear. It's part of the gospel. You guys know what the gospel is? In our Saturday school, uh, from the time we, ha we have sixth graders through eighth graders, and basically our goal is to teach them the gospel. And every single time we say in class, what is the gospel, kids? Everyone raises their hand and everyone shouts, 
what the gospel is. The good news. Someone says good news. Someone says this and that. And it's awesome. And I want to ask youth, what is the gospel? The good news. What is the good news? I'm not hearing everyone answer. I want everybody to know what the gospel is. And um, that's what we teach in Saturday school. And you guys need to know, like, on the spot, what's the gospel? Uh, the girl that came up said, we need, to go preach. we need to go preach the gospel. It's something we need to preach. It's something we need to do. It's awesome, you know? But what is the gospel? Like, what is it? You need to know what it is to go and preach it. But that's completely off topic. But the reason why I stress the message of faith alone is because I believe that some people here in this room still believe that their works can get them into a right relationship with God. When we come to God and we say, you know, and we come maybe to an altar call and we, uh, we come and we repent, we say, God, forgive me for X, Y, and Z. Forgive me for my sins, God. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be a better person, God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Please forgive me. I'm going to try harder this time. Just give me another chance. You know, I see this as a youth leader in altar calls. Um, I come up and I pray with, with people as, they, as they're repenting. And I hear this, God, forgive me. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And sadly, I did the same thing. I did the same thing for many years. I went up to many altar calls, more than I can count. And I said, God, forgive me. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to try by my own works. I'm going to try something. And the thing is, I knew I was a sinner. I legitimately knew I was a sinner. I knew um, that I wanted to change. You know, the friends that I had at the time, all they wanted to do was just drink when we would hang out. I was addicted to pornography for 10 years of my life. And every single time I would go out to the altar calls, I would pray, I would repent, but every single year I would get deeper and deeper and deeper into my sin. You know, I'm going to be 23 here in a month, and I watched pornography for 10 years. I watched pornography for almost half my life. Let that sink in. Every year it's getting worse and worse and worse. And I kept going out to altar calls. I kept doing all this stuff. And one day something, something shifted my mind on how I approached God. Um, I watched pornography almost destroy a marriage. This was someone that I knew. This was someone that was close to me. And this guy, he got drunk. He locked himself in his room, and he was watching it. And his wife walked in on him. And I heard this story. This almost completely just broke this marriage. This was a huge disaster. This was just crazy. And I, hearing this, I looked at him, and I knew how hopeless I was in my sin. There was a time where I thought I could beat it. I could do something to overcome that sin. But looking at him and looking at how hopeless my situation was up until that time, I cried. I wept before God. And I didn't say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm going to change. I'm going to be better. I'm going to do something. I said, God, I've tried so many times. 
I don't know what to do. Forgive me. And at the time I heard the preaching of the gospel and I embraced the gospel. I said, God, I know I can't do anything on my own, but you died for me on the cross. You've forgiven me of my sin. You've given me new life in your son, Jesus Christ. And I believe that you will give me your righteousness when I ask for it. I believe that you died for me and that you gave me your righteousness. Your righteousness is now upon me, not because of my works, but because I believed in Jesus Christ. And, you know, and you know, and when you come to Jesus with your sin, you know, whatever it is, it's, it could be pornography, it could be drugs, it could be alcoholism, it could be, you know, it cannot even be that, it could be gossip, it could be slander, it could be anger, it could be all these things. And you come to him and you say, God, I'm a sinner. I know that I'm wrong. The Holy Spirit is convicting your heart of that sin. You know what Jesus did for you on the cross? Guys, you know what Jesus did for you on the cross because of your sin? Jesus came. He lived a perfect, sinless life that you or I could never live on our own power. And he took the sin of the whole world willingly on himself. Someone who was perfect and righteous and he was, had everything going for him took the sin of the whole world on himself and your sin is the reason why he went to the cross. He's righteous, you're not. He had to die because of your sin. And he did it willingly, he did it lovingly for you. And... God wants to have fellowship with you, but your sin separates you from God. But Jesus lived that perfect, righteous life for you. Perfect, righteous life for you. And when you say, God, I'm sorry, I repent. And you say, God, I believe that you died for me. That righteous life that Jesus now lived is my life. My life is now hidden in Christ. I am saved by faith and faith alone. I'm not saved by my works. I'm not going to try harder. I'm not going to do this, but I'm saved because you died for me. And I believed it by faith and faith alone. And you know what Christ did for you? When you put your faith in Christ, he gives you new life. He gives you freedom from your sin. He gives you victory over sin. He puts you in union in Christ to the point that his life that he lived on earth is now your life. His righteousness is now your righteousness through faith. And the best way that I can sum up this union that we have with Christ is with how an actual union works. You guys know how a union works? So I myself, I'm a union electrician. And with my job, we have, we have good pay, we have excellent pay, we have, um, on top of our paycheck, we have medical benefits, we have dental vision, we have our union pension, and then we have a 401k plan, and we have 
The best of all, we have representation in the union. We have someone representing us so that um, versus like in the non-union side, non-union electricians, they don't have that representation. You know, if they're being, if they mess up or if they screw up or if the owner doesn't, simply just doesn't like them, he can fire them at any given moment. He can say, you're gone, you're off the job, and you're gone, you're leaving. But we have representation. You can't just simply fire that person. You can't simply just say, you're gone. And so, in the non-union side, your standing with the company is based off your works. It's based off how smart you are, how fast you are, how good of a worker, and how, and, and if you can't live up to the standard that they want you to live for, that they want you to work for, you're gone. They, they just kick you to the dirt, right? But in the union, my good standing with the company, the reason I'm working is not be necessarily because I'm the best worker, I'm the best this, but because, and simply because, I'm in the union. Because they represent me. I have a representative before the company, and it's the same way with God, that my good standing with God is solely because I have a representative, and that representative is Jesus Christ. I can stand before God, and I'm I can be in that union with him, not because of my works, but because simply because I'm in Christ. I'm in the union, and he's my representative. And the best thing about being in union with Christ is that he gives you forgiveness of sins, like I mentioned, new life, freedom from sin and death. He secures your salvation, and he's going to give you eternal life. And knowing what Christ freely gives you through faith, you know, knowing what he freely gives you through faith, it makes you want to serve him. I don't go serving Christ because I have to or because I, I fear of getting uh, punished by Christ or if I mess up that he's going to cast me away like in a non-union. But... I work to please him because he's given me all these benefits. He's given me new life. He's given me all these things. And I work to please him. I have different motives now for pleasing Christ. And the moral of the story today, I've talked about a lot of stuff. The moral of the story is join the union. Right? No. The moral of the story is not to join the union, but join the union with Christ by faith alone, by sola fidei. And believe in Him as your Lord and Savior. You can put your trust in Him. May we all put our faith in Jesus Christ and Him and Him alone. Amen. Let us pray.